So uh, this week as I kind of mulled over what I wanted to prepare on, it was like, even though I have a point at the end of my message, there's a lot of points. And so you'll see from my slides uh, that uh, they're actually called scattered learnings from the life of David. And uh, so what I want to do is, first of all, let me, Paul, you can write this down for when you put this down, is that I want to entitle this message, Our Journey, God's Victory. And um, I want to set the scene quite quickly. And what I'm going to do is I'm literally going to run from 1 Samuel 25 all the way through to 31. And this was the time that David was in the wilderness, most of the time that he was in the wilderness, when he was running. And part of this is, I think in most of our lives, we find ourselves that we kind of say, God, what's going on? Why are the promises that you spoke? Why are the things that we know that is in our hearts are not coming to being? And yet during this time when David was outside of his kingship, outside of even Judah at times, outside of the, the influence of Israel and of Judah, God did the most work in his heart. And so let's have a quick look. And what we see is David's fleeing in, in chapter 25 from Saul. He's living in the wilderness. He's gathered these 600 men around him. And they've moved into what they call the desert of Paran. And uh, what they're doing is they're protecting the people around them. And so they're warriors. There's 600 of them. They're actually, a lot of them have come from the downcast, the downtrodden, those who are depressed and, and just the rejects of society. David's built them into this amazing army alongside him. And what happens is they, they, they get hungry. And they say, well, let's get something to eat. And uh, they think, well, look, we've been protecting all of these people across this land. And there's a man called Nabal who's a, probably one of the most wealthy guys. And he's got so much. David says to some of his men, why don't you go and ask him for some, from some chow and for something to drink? And so his men go to Nabal and they ask Nabal and they ask him very nicely. And they say, look, hey, look, we've done all of this. We've, we've kept all the bands and robbers away from you, the Philistines, the Amalekites, whatever they might be. Can you respond and reciprocate and give us some, money, some food and something to drink because we're really, really hungry and thirsty? And Nabal uses that great, great Greek ancient term that we use in South Africa. And he says, footsack. So his men go back to David, and they say, listen, this is what Nabal said. David gets really, really angry. In fact, this is his response. He says, each one of you strap on your sword. And they did, and David strapped on his. This is verse 13 of chapter 25. And he says, about 400 of them went with David, and the other two stayed behind with the supplies. I want you to remember that for the moment, because I'm going to come back to it later. 400 go, 200 stay. So put that and pin it in your board of your minds. Make this long story short. What happens is, is you've got Nabal's wife, whose na- who, her name is Abigail. She hears what her husband's done and realizes it was a foolish thing to do. So she gets a whole bunch of supplies and she cuts David off before he gets, because David's about to kill Nabal and every descendant of Nabal. He's got 400 men, you can imagine. It's not going to look pretty. It's going to be a bloodbath. She stops him and she says, no, 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 here are the supplies. Please, won't you, don't, don't, don't be silly. And so David kind of realizes, okay, she's, I've overstepped my bounds here. I was operating out of my anger. I didn't inquire of God. Let me go back. Okay, thank you. And he takes it back, and all 600 men enjoy the provisions that have been given. Those who stayed behind, those who went to fight. What happens is Abigail tells her husband Nabal the next day, because he's all drunk and disorderly that night, tells him the next day, listen, this is what's happened. He falls down dead with a heart attack. David hears about this, comes and in a sense, rescues Abigail and marries her as one of his, and makes her one of his wives. Then in 1 Samuel 26, what we start to see is we start to see Saul rises up again. Because 
Earlier on, Saul actually had David surrounded, and then he heard that the Philistines were coming, and so he had to stop his pursuit of David and go and and deal with the the border intrusion by the Philistines. And so David got away, one of God's interventions to save David. So what we see here in in 26 is that Saul gathers 3,000 trained soldiers of Israel to go in search of David. Think of the amount of money and resources it takes to get an army of 3,000 men to go chase one man. Sounds similar to somebody who's leading our country at the moment. What God does, though, is he called, once once Saul and his 3,000 men arrive in the vicinity where David is, he causes 3,000 men to fall asleep. David goes in quite carefully. Remember before he went in and he cut the garment off Saul's, Saul's cloak? This time he goes in, he takes the jug and the spear, which were next to his bed, and he stands on the hillside and he says, hey... Guys, you don't even look after your own king. Actually, Saul, I could have killed you again. And Saul says, actually, I understand, David. Now, the interesting thing in that moment was his own men said to him, you need to kill Saul. He says, no, we will not kill Saul. And then David prophesies, and he says the following. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, this is verse 10 of chapter 26, the Lord himself will strike him down, or his time will come, and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. 18 months, in fact, 16 months later, Saul dies in a battle. Not only that, though, but Saul has prophesied David's future. Not particularly this time, but the previous time when he cut off the side of his, his robe. He says, surely God has called you to be king. And so even in this, his own enemies are telling him his future. And David is running from this man. Now, as I said, what I want to do is... I want to start giving you scattered, or scattered thoughts or scattered learnings of David's life. And this is the first one. Whoops. This is the first one. It's that often God gives more prophetic insight of your future to others than he does to you. That's why we need community. You said to God, I need to make this decision. God, you need to lead me. God, you this, God, that. Nothing. And then Grant comes up and says, Gary, I just sense God saying this. Oh, wow. See, in the very next chapter, what we see is, this is chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. We see this moment, and it's verse 1 right away. So this has all happened. Saul's now stopped pursuing David. David's now going, well, hold on a second. And he's really said to his men, no, don't touch him. God's going to take care of him. No problem. How's this? One of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. God's doing all of this stuff for him, and now all of a sudden, he's caught himself up in fear. God's protected him. This is probably the 12th time that God has intervened that Saul has not been able to get him. If you go back to, I think it's chapter 22 or 23, there's the prophet Gad who's replaced um, um, Samuel, and he says to David, actually, God has said that you must live in Judah. So that's the last time that David has inquired of God. He's had a prophetic word from one of the prophets of the time that has said, stay in Judah. He doesn't inquire of God. He goes to the enemy territory. He goes to live there. And unfortunately, what happens is, is for 18 months, he now lives in compromise. You see, the thing is, My number two scattered learning is that God wants us to have confidence in him and not information. 
lean a church for as long as I have now, I often find somebody comes to me and says, Gary, you know, everybody's upset about X, Y, and Z. I've learned now. I said, okay, so, so can you tell me who everybody is? Well, well it's me. And you know what? I, I bumped into Grant the other day, and I mentioned it to him. And, and he kind of said that, that he was also upset about it. Okay, well, let me go speak to Grant. Grant, you know, Mr. X said this about that everyone's upset. What do you think? No, no, that's not kind of how it went down. It was just mentioned. And I said, yeah, we could have probably done that better. But there was no representation around that it was bad or good. Oh, okay, so it's not everybody. So the information that's been received, now let me trust in God, because God has said this is the way we do it. And in my early days, I used to like spin out, ask Louise, because somebody was unhappy. Meanwhile, it was just some one. We've got to watch that we don't respond and react to information. Let's respond and to react to the living God who has our back. But here's David, overwhelmed with fear now, and he makes a decision, and he runs away into the enemy territory. How many times do we do that? Have you ever seen a dog or a cat that gets scared and runs across the road? Guess what happens? The first cat that I ever killed was on Moncourt Drive. I was actually house sitting Mark Linda's place. I was on my way home at night, and they've got the, they had the uh, golf course across the road. And I was, that road's quite a long road. I was traveling about 140, no, I was, I was traveling about 80 k's an hour, and this uh, ginger cat ran across in front of me. I mean, there wasn't even a chance. Boom, 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 game over. Stopped, went back, uh, okay, roadkill, move on. But the problem is that cat obviously saw something or ran out of fear or out of whatever it was, and look at the, the ramifications. And like I said, God has said, stay in Judah. My third scattered learning is making decisions outside God's will may get you immediate relief from your circumstances, but it really ends well and you live in compromise. I know of so many people over the years who have emigrated, exited South Africa, but they haven't inquired of the Lord. They've done it out of fear. I'm not saying immigration is wrong or right, <laughs> but the amount of stories of fractured and broken families that are scattered across the history annuals of our, of, of our lives and of South Africans because they've just decided they're running and they go to another country and they think it's going to be what they're supposed to and it's not. Guys, when we make big decisions, be careful that we're not looking for immediate relief of our circumstances. Is God saying this? If he is, because David defects and actually goes to the enemy. He goes to God's enemy and Israel's enemy and goes and lives with them. Louis says it's stupid, but we, we, we do it all the time, don't we? Now, I got a meeting on Friday, and there's a number of folks that came with me. And uh, there's a man called Rob Boiter who preaches. Um, he leads a church in Doha. He's got this multicultural um, congregation, does amazing work into that whole eastern region. And uh, he says, he challenges us as church leaders. And he says, how many of you are living in compromise? And I sit there and I go, me, God. And he says, the three main areas... It's the typical three main areas where we live in compromise. It's always money, sex, and power. We live in compromise around those things. And, and, he, and he challenged us. He says, so are you guys tithing? Are you guys giving? Are you living a life of generosity to the people around you? And he gave a whole bunch of examples. He says, are you living in compromise sexually? 
And sometimes we look at, when we look at sexual sin, we think of, of sexual sins as sins of commission, and of course they are. But what about the, sec, the, the, the sins of omission sexually? Husbands, are you loving your wives? Wives, are you giving yourselves to your husbands? And then, are you usurping authority in the context of your workplace because you don't agree with your boss? And we'll see what happens here with David when the men disagree. It's very quiet now. But if we're honest, we associate with what David did, don't we? Because sometimes these days where we just see God working with us, we see like every part of our lives, just God's doing this and we can see the future and it's like, wow, God. And then the next day we go, God, what are you doing? No, I didn't ask for that, God. God, why have you allowed that to happen? And we start to fear and we start to make the decisions that are unhelpful. But it's at these moments when we come to crossroads that it's imperative that we stop, we inquire of God. David didn't do that. Because those decisions that you make, you'll see now, impact the future. There will be consequences. So, Achish, the Philistine king, he, he receives David. It's amazing. I mean, if you look at that, David's gone and had war with, with Kyla just before that. He's killed Goliath before that. And he comes to the Philistines and they welcome him in. You kind of go, how did that happen? Uh, we don't really know, but he accepts him. And what David does is he takes these 600 men because the king of Achish says, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you a city called Ziklag in our territory. And they build their city, stroke town, whatever you want to call it. And from there, they go and they raid into Judah. But what they do is they go and they kill all the other arts, the, the Amorites, the Jeburites, the, all the other arts. And they go in there and they take all of these things from common enemies of the Philistines and from Israel. David never attacks um, a Jewish or Judah um, city or town. And what happens is, is um, they, that's how they live. They go and they raid all of these things. And, and the Philistine king thinks that he's working on his behalf. And then 1 Samuel 28, looks like everything's going according to plan. And Achish the king says, hey, we're about to go into the biggest battle of our, of our history against Israel. Are you coming? And David says, yes. Never intending to actually go, or if he went in there, he would do what the commanders of, of the Philistine army said. They, they turn to the king and they say, we're not going into battle with this. So this guy killed Goliath. The top 40 song is the fact that he killed tens of thousands. For goodness sake, we're not going to battle with him. So Achish comes to David and says, listen, buddy, not going to happen. My commanders won't go into battle with you, so you need to go home. And so off he goes, and he goes home. And in the same time, there's Saul, who's about to enter into this battle, and it's up in the north. And I'll show you a map in a moment. And um, Paul doesn't know what to, Saul doesn't know what to do. So what he does is he goes and he consults a medium. So what can we learn from this? Using worldly or ungodly ways with the right motive never works. As a community, we've made mistakes. As a leader, I've made mistakes. We've, we've tried to use worldly things to evangelize people. How can we be so dwarf and still breathe? We think that by becoming like the world, we can sidle alongside them and then bring them into the church. No. No, we are the church. We are the children of God that shine as lights and salt to this world. And so we need to be set apart. That's why we're called saints. That's why we're called holy. We are consecrated for God. And we need to bring people into this, not go out into the world and try and become the world so that we can bring them into the church. Because guess what will happen? You'll get lost. That's what happened to Saul. He's lost the plot. 
So 1 Samuel 29, what we see is the Philistines commanders, like I said, they say, no, no, <laughs> we're not going to fight with this guy. Achish sends David back. And we land up with where I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time is chapter 30 and 31. And what we see is this is the culmination of the work that God has done in David's life. Now, you can remember, you remember that they've walked 80, almost 80 kilometers. That's 50 miles. From where they were all the way back to Ziklag. Took them three days to do that. With all their stuff, swords, spears, all their baggage, whatever they had with them. And when they arrive there, they find that Ziklag is destroyed. And we remember that David's men turn on him. And it says that they want to, I've, I've realized that it wasn't all 600. It was a handful. It was a handful of men that had issues with David and turned on him and wanted to kill him. So what's my next scattered learning? Is that no matter where you are in life, there will be a third of people in this world that dislike you. There will be a third that are indifferent to you. And there will be a third that love you. Settle that right now. It took me way too long to learn that. I wanted everybody to like me. I want everybody to like Lifehouse Church. I mean, come on. What's there not to like? But the fact is, is that that's not the truth. There are people that don't have the same DNA as us. And I'll speak about that in a moment. And as a result of it, no matter where you are in life, no matter what workspace you're in, you will come across colleagues, bosses, whatever, that will either like you, dislike you, or be indifferent to you. Stop trying to influence them any other way and be you. See, these people know better. Well, they think they know better. They think they can do it better than you, and maybe they can even can. And certainly when it goes wrong, guess who they're going to blame? And we'll see that with, well, we, saw, we see that with happening with David. And so what I did is I camped around that moment where David strengthened himself in the Lord. For four weeks, I gave you know, detailed things about what David did, and I'm not going to go into that. If you want to hear that, go and listen to the previous messages that are on SoundCloud. But here's David. Once he's, in quiet, once, he's, once he's got to that place and he's strengthened himself in the Lord, he does what he should have done in the first place, and he inquires of God. And he says, God, do we need to go and pursue these men? These guys who have taken our, our, our city or our town and they've smashed it to the ground. They've burnt it to smithereens. God says, yes, go and pursue. I've given you the victory. Now, David hadn't done that since chapter 23. The last time he inquired of the Lord was in the battle against the Philistines when they were fighting against Caleb. So it's a long time that David hasn't, probably 15 months that he hasn't actually gone in and spoken to God and asked him what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. So what's my next scattered learning? It says we need to inquire of God when we are making decisions. The thing is, though, ladies and gentlemen, isn't it, we understand this. Because what happens is we get caught up in life, we get caught up in all the mess, and then all of a sudden we go, oh, we haven't actually asked God whether we should be doing this. Well, we kind of slip. It's like, oh, I haven't even asked God whether I should be doing this. I haven't asked God whether we should be doing, as a family, should we be doing this? Louise, let's pray. What, what is God saying? Do we feel a release? Do we feel a peace that is our umpire that helps us navigate this next season? It says that David, in verse 8 of 31, David inquired of the Lord, shall we pursue? Will I overtake them? God says, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them. You will succeed and you will rescue them. Okay, so great. Again, we, we read that and then we go, okay, just think about that for a moment. They have no idea who this is. They have no idea where they've gone. Which way do they go? North, south, east, west? Okay, they know they didn't come that way because they've obviously come from the north. So they've got three other options. Do we go west? Do we go east? Do we go south? Here's my next scattered learning. 
He's like, when you have the word of the Lord, for goodness sake, start moving. I've said this before, and some of you may have heard, is that when you're trying to move a fridge, and when we move in a few weeks' time and we try and move that fridge, that first little bit is, gee, just to get it to start to move, and then all of a sudden you get the momentum, and, or you, you're pushing it and you can direct it. When you have momentum, you can guide the object, no matter how heavy it is. And God's asking us to get momentum. God's asking us to move. God's asking us to take steps of faith towards the things that he's called us to. Some of you are looking for jobs, new jobs. Start to take steps towards it. Some of you are sick in your body. Well, start to take steps for it. Pray for it. We heard all the testimonies this morning. Can you see how the expectation levels and our faith levels are rising because God's working all amongst us? You know, when we... When, when God spoke to me about getting the property, we hadn't even started the church yet. Some of you were in that meeting. And I come and I say, guys, I know we haven't even started the church yet, but this is what God's saying. Now, you can stand back and go, okay, God, we're waiting for you to just drop this property out of the sky. Come on. Or, what? no, faith step was, God, I'm going to the estate agents. Hey, guys, we're looking for property. Well, who are you? No, we're a church. How, how, how many people are you? We're 30 people. What? What do you want? Do you want like a little shack in Kai Sands or what are you looking for? No, no, we're looking for a property, big property, because God is going to do stuff with us. Faith steps. And I'm not going to tell you the story, but many of you know the story. When you, and we'll see it. The same thing happens here. So let's have a look. Verse 9 says, David and the 600 men, remember the 600 men? It's the same 600. They go to a place called the Bezor Valley, where some stay behind. 200 of them were so exhausted to cross that they could not cross the valley. But David and the other 400 went on in pursuit. Okay. So let's have a look at this map. Here's Ziklag. That's where the big battle between the Philistines and um, uh, Israel happened, where Saul dies. Okay. Here's Ziklag over here. So they've already traveled 80 miles from somewhere up here because they were with the Philistine guys. Now what's happening is, is they go and travel another 30 to go to the Bezor Valley. They've been traveling four or five days now. There are some of them, I think they are delirious because they have hardly slept. They've been walking for all of this time. They are taking massive, they even wept until they had no strength when they found out that Ziklag was burned and that their kids and their moms and dads and everybody was gone. And they've probably jogged those 30 kilometers because they know they've actually had to try and catch up with these guys who've taken their stuff. I think I missed one, yeah. Oh, no, this is it. And so sometimes the most godly thing that we can do is we can rest. Again, being involved with church communities, leading church, there's, there's some of you that do an amazing amount of work in this community. But here's where the lack of wisdom arises, is you do so much that you get to a point that you fall over and you go, oh, I can't do it anymore. As opposed to taking the wisdom and saying, you know what, for this season, I'm just, I'm just putting back a little bit. They didn't go home. They didn't disappear. No, they still performed a function, a role. They looked after the stuff, but they realized that if I go, I'm going to hinder the other 400 that are going to fight. And in fact, I'll probably lose my life because I'm so delirious right now. I don't know if that's a tree or a man. <laughs> I remember driving up to Malawi on a mission trip once, and we left at 12 o'clock at night, and I took the second drive, which was from 2 until 4 in the morning. And so we're going up you know, through uh, Mpumalanga area, wherever we were. I promise you, I saw trees move. And I actually stopped after about an hour. I stopped the car and I said, somebody needs to drive. 
because I'm hallucinating right now. And that was just because I got to bed late. And so these guys must have been so tired. And like I said, the most godly thing sometimes is just to, just to pull back for a season. Don't disengage. Just put a few things down. Get yourself organized. Get yourself refreshed and come forward again and start serving the community that you're part of. You know, God's shown us. It's, I know I'm going to get, this is the pot calling the kettle black. God's given us a model of the Sabbath. And we need to rest. <laughs> Nothing like a wife, eh? Let me move on because I'm in trouble already. I, I do say this from a position of weakness. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink, food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs. I mean, how's this detail? Two cakes of raisins. He ate and he was revived because he had not eaten food or had anything to drink for three days and three nights. David asked him, so who do you belong to? Where do you come from? I'm an Egyptian slave of the Amalekites. My master abandoned me when I became ill a few days ago. We raided the Negev and a whole bunch of other places and we burned Ziklag. Okay, so David knows. Okay, so this guy was part of the deal. So David asked him, can you lead us to this raiding party? And the guy said to him, look, just swear to me that if I show you, you're not going to kill me. David says, no problem. And so, again, do you think this is coincidence? Same thing, when we bought the land, we started, we took steps towards it, and then God started to unfold it. In your lives right now, are you taking steps towards stuff? Because when you start to move, God direction, guess what God provides? Who do you think caused that Egyptian slave to get sick? Now, I met with somebody not recently, and they went through a really tough time and a really bad trauma, and I understand where they were. But they were basically saying to me, actually, they're living out a fatalistic life. As Christians, what do we need to do? Because I prayed that this person would be healed and they died. And therefore, why, why must I pray anymore? Because God just took them anyway. So God's going to do what he wants, when he wants, anyway. So why must I pray? Why must I get involved in people's lives? Why must I have a relationship with God the Father? Or, or why must I do that? What's the point? Here's the big problem. Is that when we do that, and that's my next point. When we have a fatalistic view of God, we undermine the gospel. Why do I say that? Because if that is who God is, then he's a far away, not interested in us person, who doesn't really want to be part of our lives. So he's just like, he might as well be Buddha or Muhammad or somebody else. Whereas the gospel talks about God becoming man to come close to us so that he would show us the way to the Father and reconcile us back into relationship. Our phones are reminding me about a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Verse, my, my second point is, notice the compassion, the hospitality, and generosity that opens up God's plan. The Good Samaritan style, isn't it? There's a man who's half dead. They don't go and say, oh, he's a slave. Let's, let's give him a kick in the ribs and just kind of finish him off. No, they actually treat him with dignity and with honor. What are we doing with people around us? Especially those with lower economic and social statuses are we treating them with dignity because maybe part of god's plan and the way god's going to open up his plan for your life is through a dirty half-dead egyptian slave and i say that metaphorically clearly 
David doesn't know the Amalekites have raided them. He doesn't even know who they are. But now he knows and he finds out. And again, remember this. Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites and didn't do it in disobedience towards God. David's now fighting Saul's battle. More than that, David's disobedience by going to live in Philistine and starting to raid all of these things. Guess what? He had raided some of the Amalekite villages. This is payback. This is revenge. See what happens when we make, remember I said, there's consequences, further consequences when we make decisions to get out of our immediate context and relief from them. He has a consequence of those actions. And so what's brilliant is the, the slave shows them where they are. Now, <laughs> this is what it says. It says, he led David, verse 16, and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. So Ziklag wasn't the only town or city that they had come and smashed. Why? Because they had realized, hey, the Philistines and Israel, they're going to be fighting up north. <laughs> they're far away. And guess what? David's even part of them. So let's go smack them because all the 600 men aren't there, not realizing what had happened. So they're all drunk and disorderly. There's a whole bunch of them. I remember there's 400 men now coming up against this massive amount of army. There's clearly a whole bunch of them, and I'll show you in a moment. It says that they killed all of them except for 400 men who got away. So imagine how many they were actually fighting against. And it goes on to say, does that remind you of somebody? 400 men against the whole bunch. Okay, it was 300 with Gideon, but it's not a lot less in terms of this process. So verse 17 says, David fought from dust until evening the next day. And it says that except for 100 young men who rode off on camels, everyone else was killed. 400, what did I say? 500. 400. Except for 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. Now, remember these guys are tired. Remember the process? 80 kilometers, another 30 kilometers. Now they've traveled even further. And now they're fighting from an evening, dusk, all the way through to the next evening, throughout the night. Think how tired you are. Now, I've already said one of the best things you can do and the most godly things you can do sometimes is rest. But there's another moment where... Okay, I've already said living in compromise when they get inflicted. There are some things worth fighting for even when you are tired. And what are those things? Well, how about time with God? How about inquiring of God? How about time in prayer? How about reading your word? How about time in silence and solitude? There are things that even when we are tired, we should be fighting for, even through the night. Because God has called us to that because there's a fight that needs to be won in order to take us into those. And here's the most amazing thing is in those moments when we choose to fight, there's a long-lasting victory that happens. Do you know that you don't hear of the Amalekites for another 300 years because of that battle? Verse 18, David recovered everything from the Amalekites that they'd taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder, or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and the herds, and his men drove them ahead of all the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So, number 13, and coming to, into land, this is one of the great gospel statements. Recovered all. Recovered everything. Jesus wants all to be saved. When Jesus went into areas, all were healed. And not only were all healed, not only was all recovered, but they got the plunder from all the other places that they had taken. Isn't that the gospel? Because not only do we get our sins paid for by Jesus, he takes on our sins. 
We get his righteousness and his right living. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. Not only that, we get the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us. Not only that, but we don't just get life, but we get life to the abundance. It's like a very market. It's like if you get this, you get this. And then if you get this, you get this. And there's more. So verse 21, it says, Then David came to the 200. This is my last point. He came to the 200. And they had been too exhausted to come with them. They were left behind in the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and the other men. And as they approached them, he asked them how they were. Verse 22. But all the evil men and troublemakers among them. Remember, that I think the same ones they were trying to kill David when Ziklag was burnt. They said, because these guys did not come and fight with us, they will not share in the plunder that we have recovered. However, each man must take his wife and children and they must go. Isn't that the human condition? Isn't that the amazing thing that we land up with in our environment? We land up with comrades, constituents, and we land up with confidants. What are those? This is a Rob Rufus thing. He's got full credit for it. Many of you have heard his preach on this. And so I'm just taking it and I'm going to summarize it quickly. See, confidants are people that have your heart. They have your DNA. In the context of a local community like Lifehouse, there are people that come in and say, okay, God, we are coming here because God has called us here. Yes, we are coming to support the eldership and Gary and Louise. But at the same time, what we are doing is God is calling us into this community to be part of this community, to love them and to love each other. Then what you have is you, you know, the, well, the people who love and respect the DNA and the leaders, they are loyal and they're faithful and uh, through both the good and the bad times. And there are people that are committed to what God and the vision that God has for this church. Constituents, well, they're just people who, because the church, Lifehouse Church is going in that direction, they're part of us. The minute we, we kind of uh, change or do something different, then they'll, they'll, they won't be around anymore. So what they'll do is we'll be on the highway and we'll be traveling and there's a car that's traveling faster than us. They, stop, they hop onto that because they're just with us because we're traveling in the same direction. They're here for convenience. And then you've got the comrades. And the comrades are these religious people. And so what they do is they join the church for their own agenda. They're really here for them. They're here for themselves and for their ministry. And if they don't get the profile and what they want, then they won't be comrades anymore. So, for example, they would join a church that preaches grace because that's their agenda. They want to, we've had this massive grace outflow over the last kind of five to ten years. And so they come to a church and they say, no, grace, grace, grace. But the minute you start to put leadership in there and you talk about submission, they go, no, you've been religious. But actually what they are is they're grace Pharisees. And they don't want to submit into authority. They just want to hold up the, the flag of grace so that they can do what they want and for their own agendas. And what you have is these men around David who start to do that. So they've already shown themselves when they want to kill David. <laughs> now what they're doing is, hey, hold on a second. We went with, the, with the, the sword and the spears. We went and risked our lives. And these oaks sat down on their bums and did nothing. They're not sharing in what, what we've done for them. Here's the thing. God says this in Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength and my hands produced my wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And he confirms that in his covenant, which he swears before you and your ancestors today. Notice David's response in verse 23. David says, my dear brothers, you must not do that. 
For it is not you that have done this, but it's what the Lord has given to us. He has protected us. He has delivered us into the hands of the raiding party that has come against us. Who will listen to what I say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is the same as the one who went down to battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day onwards. Isn't that the gospel though, ladies and gentlemen? Because the last three things I want to say out of that is that we need to be securing God's providence. Maybe you're going through a rough time because God's providence is his unseen hand in the events in, the, in your life that bring about his purposes. So sometimes it looks like, oh my word, what is going on, Lord? Think about David. He arrives at Ziklag. What the? What's going on? Now guys are trying to kill him. Guess what? The fact that the, the city was, of Ziklag was destroyed to the ground allowed him a week later to go back to Judah because he had no home to become king. Because Saul had died and they called him. He didn't go, you know what? I've still got Ziklag. This is my home. All, all my houses and my stuff. No, God destroyed them. And sometimes God destroys things in our lives, so we can't go back to them. That he has a new future planned for us, and when we see it all, oh, we can't go back because there's actually nothing there. Does that make sense? God's providence, God working, because David says, hold on a second, you think that we won that victory. No, no. Who do you think provided the Egyptian slave? Who do you think allowed them to become drunk and disorderly and whatever and allowed us to win that great victory? You think it was by your sword? Come on, guys. That's not the way it is. Let's give honor and glory to God. Lesson two. Rely fully on his grace. You know, grace gives us stuff we don't deserve. We don't have to work for it. And the sooner we get to a place where we realize that we are unworthy, whether we perform or not, we need to get to that place. We need to settle that. that the only reason we are worthy is because of Jesus. We cannot do enough to be worthy. And we are the perfect spotless bride that fits inside Jesus that when the Father looks at us, he sees perfection. And then lastly, the work of God is only accomplished through a body. Romans 12, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us about that, that we're a body. And there's a whole uh, explanation on that around what that all entails. And it all entails that we've got hands and feet and eyes and we can't, but there's a dependency on each other. You know, in a few moments, we're going to sing and then we're going to break out here and we're going to have tables here and we're going to have food. And we've had guys who've set up this morning and we've had ladies who've provided eats and who do all of this stuff. And that seems like a menial task. But let me tell you, I, I want to say to those, those ladies and those gents who set up, who work behind the scenes, who get us that food, who do all of that stuff for us, thank you. Because you're a vital part of this community. You're not the ones that are 200 that stay behind and don't share in the spoils because the gospel is about all participate. We're a body with little pinkies that are this. Have you ever tried to take the, the top of your thumb off and then try and change a button? Have you ever tried to take your big toe off and try and walk or run? Have you ever taken away your hearing, your eyesight? Maybe just take your lung out that you can't see. See, we're a body that works together that God will only accomplish through us if each person plays their part. And you may think it's this menial little bit, but actually all of us, you maybe think like you're sitting there waiting for David and the other 400 to come home. But it's no less important than what I'm doing right now, declaring and preaching the word of God. Everybody's the same. That's the kingdom way. And David understood that. 
and he put that into play. What he does is, if you look at the last bit, and I'm not going to go into it, he goes and he, then he distributes all of that plunder to all those cities that were raided by the Amalekites. Shows a generosity to them. He didn't know he was going to be king in a week's time. Are we influencing the people around us? Like we spoke of this morning, the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Are we, are we being generous with our lives? Because when we are generous with our lives, we impact for the future. So in conclusion, each one of us is on a life journey. It's all, all of us have a different type of journey that we're on. Sometimes it's overwhelming. But we've got others like David who have gone before us that we can learn from. You know, we're about to enter into a new season as a community. In three weeks' time, we leave this venue. We actually go home. Louise and I, when we, we were about to plant, and we were asked to consider planting into Pretoria, Centurion, Midrand, and we drove around there. We, had, we went to coffee shops. We, we said, God, is this where you want us? Click, 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 click. <laughs> Nothing. We drive along Cedar Road. We drive into the whole Cedar um, Lake, Broadacres area, and we just, God just says, this is it. This is the place. Lee Morgan finds a venue for us within a day. Amazing Christian couple who go to New Life, the Warrens. And we, we go and we spend time there. We, we land up in, at the old barnyard theater for eight months, and we go, God, what are you doing? This is amazing. And it was redone into this amazing spot. And then eight months later, we got thrown out by the sheriff of the court because the guys couldn't pay their bills. And you go, God, what are you doing? And then God takes us across, and I go, God, why are you? We're supposed to be there. Why are we on the side of Danefern? And God, over this last thing, Gary, I've been hiding you. Well, why are you hiding me? Well, like David, you, you've been hiding us. Why? Because you're growing stuff in us. I've got lessons to learn. But I feel like God is saying now, okay, we're moving you back into Judah. We're moving you back into your promised land so that we can start to do what I've called you to be. This story of David, this preaching series, is not by a coincidence. David is taking, God is taking us back to a place. We are 500, those who came on to our land visit, we are 500 meters from the venue we're going to, where our land is. We're going to come out of our venue, even on our venue, we're going to go, there's our land. So when we actually move on there, and I'm hoping it's this year, I really am, more than likely early next year, but we, we literally just jump. Last move. And then you know what? The presence of God is going to stop traffic on Cedar Road. Why? Because it's what God is doing in and through us, through the scattered learnings of a man's life, that we become the students of God's beauty and of his emotions. And we inquire of him, God, is it now? Let's stand.